0: Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavisoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Balvasoto and Les Ottolenghi.
1: It's our pleasure to welcome the woman who taught Oprah about sex while enjoying hiking in her free time, the professor of psychology at UNLV, Dr. Marta Miana. Welcome to the program, Marta.
2: Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here.
1: In all our podcasts, we have something called Unmasking the Executives. So what is the story the world doesn't know about Marta that will help our audience get a better understanding of what shaped you as a person?
2: Well, there's many stories, but one of them is that I've always done things unconventionally. And uh, I'm a very curious person who likes to try a lot of different things. And when you look at my journey, you will see that I have, in fact, done things that are very different and have learned from each one of them. Let's
1: then now dive into your, your backstory a little bit and how you went from an advertising agency... Mm-hmm. the world of psychology. Can you give me a little bit more background yeah. on
2: that So, you know, I got a couple of degrees in English literature and uh, there aren't too many jobs out there asking for a master's in English lit. So I thought, <laughs> what can I do with this? And I decided to pursue a copywriting career. But of course, I had absolutely no experience as a copywriter because I'd been in academia doing this graduate degree. So I sat over a weekend and made up a bunch of ads as if I were a copywriter and I shopped them around and I got my first copywriting job. And after doing that for a bit, I opened up my own small uh, agency, Communications and Advertising, and we had some wonderful accounts. Uh, We did the annual uh, report for Air Canada for a number of years. So it was a lot of fun. I was good at it. it. It was exciting, but I knew it wasn't my real dream. And so I had to sit down with myself and say, okay, what's your issue here? How are you going to figure out what that really is? And I decided that there were two things that I value. One is creativity and art, artistic, broadly defined. But I know I'm not that. I'm just a great appreciator of that. And the other one is helping people out, is the relief of other people's pain. So from that, I landed on clinical psychology and decided to do a Ph.D. in clinical psych. And so I did that and my uh, research area uh, was women's sexual health. And then I got my first academic position uh, here at UNLV. I went up the ranks to a full professor. And then uh, then President Neil uh contacted me and said that he would really like me to be senior advisor to the president. I was a little hesitant because I was a scholar and really happy doing what I was doing. But I thought, hey, it might be really interesting to kind of get a bird's eye view of how the university works. So I said yes. I did that for a year. And then he talked me into becoming the dean of the Honors College, uh, which I did for six years. And then the chancellor of the Nevada System of Higher Education on the Board of Regents approached me about being president when my predecessor had departed. So a lot of different things, a lot of different positions. But one of the things that's curious is that I did not go seeking any of these positions out. They all found me.
0: Is that now a leadership direction that you take? In other words, is that a common theme for you, but also a practice, that you would Suggest to others.
2: You know, I mean, I would say to others who really are interested in leadership, to to <laughs> to possibly uh, be more intentional than I was. What I did is I tried to be the very best that I can be, no matter what I do. And I kind of went through life thinking that that's what everybody does, right. but actually, it's not true. And so, if you really go that extra mile, you know, you'll find that there's very little traffic on that part of the road. And so people recognize that you really give it 150% and then come and get you. So I'm not necessarily saying if you want to be a leader that you shouldn't try to be one, right. uh, which is kind of what I, I wasn't trying to be one, but just be excellent. It'll be noticed. You said
0: something I thought was interesting. And obviously you succeeded in what we call now the digital age or the, this network age at the highest level, a university president, I don't know. There's some sort of like position higher than the university president, but I think that's it. Um, so you've been at, at the height in leadership, and it sounds like every time in your journey you've done that. You mm-hmm. talked about creativity and this ability to you know, think differently. Absolutely. How, how essential has that been to, even though you say you're not creative, but how essential has that been to your leadership style and your success?
2: Well, I wouldn't say I'm not creative. Uh, what I meant to say is I'm not an artist. Formally speaking, I'm not a musician, I'm not a painter, but creativity means an enormous amount to me because there are a gazillion people doing conventional things the way they've always been done. And that's not how you're going to stick out. That is not how you're going to be noticed. That's not how you're going to change the world. And so I think creativity is essential. And in order to be able to do that, you have to be willing to fail. Because creativity means thinking about things differently. And when you do that, you take chances. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
0: And does that mean that when you look at creativity, you're thinking, because you just used a a big statement there, which, uh, I mean, kind of like it was like you were thinking before, everyone's going to perform at their highest level. You're like, I'm going to go change the world. So is that part (laughs) and parcel of our our people? And, And certainly that's how you thought. But how everyone should be thinking about things when they try to be innovative.
2: Well, it's about engaging. So I'm a leader that's very relationship focused. And the way you engage people in relationships is by hooking them in. And you don't hook them in by doing what everybody else is doing. So even as a teacher, as a professor, you know, you walk into that classroom and you got a bunch of kids, you know, with their heads on the desk thinking, oh, here we go again. And you say, how am I going to break through that? How am I going to wake these folks up? And I think it's true in business. I think it's true in art. I think it's true in everything that we do, is you want to engage. And you don't engage by doing things the way they've been done for 100 years.
0: Our show, Net Effect, is about digital transformation, social transformation, and personal transformation. And our listeners are looking for what are the changes that they can perceive or understand from leaders like yourself. So has that engagement model changed in the digital age or how has it changed your style in the digital age?
2: You know, it's ironic because we all went into lockdown and we weren't meeting each other in person. And yet, in some ways, there has been a much wider engagement by a much wider swath of people in all sorts of activities because the technology has actually facilitated that. So to give you an example, if I did a town hall at the university as president prior to the lockdown, I'd be lucky to get 250 people in that room. When we did it remotely, we had over a thousand people. So that's the irony of it, right? Is that, you know, everybody complains about it's not as personal. And yet, in some ways, it's more. Even when you're doing a Zoom call, you're never that close to somebody's face. If you were in person without getting in trouble. Uh, So I think that we have to take this moment and really kind of not just go back to business as usual, but to say, what did we learn here that's actually better than the way we were doing it before? And what do we want to keep that we stopped doing because of the lockdown and maybe even enhance because we've now realized how important it really is?
0: And when you think about those lessons, because we do have a number of listeners who are thinking about their careers and thinking about also how to balance their lives and so on, do you think that there we have certain techniques? You know, we have obviously the example of Zoom. Do we have other techniques that make that leadership role or, for that matter, the ability to grow in one's career easier because we're more digital, because we have better connectivity? Yeah. I
2: mean, I don't think we've even... Really appreciated how multifaceted the changes are and are going to be. But definitely, now it doesn't replace a lot of, as I said, a lot of the more old fashioned kind of person to person networking. But I'll give you an example. So, one of the things that I've always done, not just as a leader, but just as a person in my field, is I lean into my discomfort. So, the minute that I hear about some development that makes me go, oh, God, I don't I don't think uh, I'm going to enjoy that. I do the opposite of what I feel. I lean into it and I say to myself, how can I use that technology? And instead of thinking it's not going to be the same, it's how do I make it great? So right now I'm in the process of designing a course in human sexuality where I've thrown myself into it with a graphic designer, With a videographer to say to myself, I want to see what is the very best product I can do with this technology. And I have to tell you, I didn't start from a place of comfort. I started from a place of, oh, that'll never be the same as you know me in front of a class. So I think leaning into our discomfort is a very important quality for both leaders and just uh, people who want to innovate.
0: And that, as you were saying, this idea of leadership and challenging yourself in an age with with a lot of change, that sounds to me like this is how you need to be thinking in this digital world, right? If you're going to really Mm -hmm. start, I mean, you've had already a remarkable career and here you are, you're like, nope, I'm going to go learn something new. I'm going to go make a difference with it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a tremendous lesson.
2: The biggest enemy is getting comfortable, right? Leadership positions are really tough. Being the president of a public university is a really tough job. And I understand the temptation. Okay, as long as like I'm just uh, keeping the thing running, you know, then we're good, right? Terrible, terrible strategy. You have to get in front of everything if you really want to make an impact.
1: We'll touch back on leadership a little bit, but I have to know, I'm super curious, right? We touched on this a little bit in our our pre-interview, but how did you end up on the Oprah show? (laughs)
2: So what happened is that um, a writer, uh, Daniel Wagner, did an article for the New York Times Sunday magazine on three up and coming uh, researchers in the area of women's sexual health. And I was one of them. And the article was primarily about female sexual desire. as, As I'm sure you all know, female sexuality has not always been privileged to the same extent as male sexuality, and so we were researchers who were really trying to bring to the fore how uh, women experience their sexuality. Well, apparently, um, Ms. Winfrey read the article in my work and was interested in uh, having me on the show, and they contacted me, and that's what I did.
1: How was the experience overall? Did it change you in any way? Did it make you a better, you know, not from a leadership standpoint, but getting on the Oprah show, it's a big deal right, for a lot of people. Did, did it change the way you thought about yourself?
2: I was very nervous. And one of the reasons I was nervous is that I was afraid that my scholarship, which is serious and data-driven, was going to be treated in some kind of salacious or sensational way. And I didn't even want to go on the show at the beginning. I resisted. What I learned from that experience is that even if your message to the public is, you know, maybe simplified a little more than you would like, it's better to communicate with the entire country than to just communicate to a small group of academics that you happen to be in. So that's how it changed me. It emphasized for me the importance of dissemination. And I think that's true even in businesses, not just in academia, is how do we share our knowledge and our innovations so that uh, the biggest group of people possible can have access to
1: it? That's great advice. And, you know, it's interesting because I know I do know a few people that kind of have been in the world of psychology and then moved into business. But from your aspect, you know, being a clinical psychologist, what is the crossover like into the business world? Like how did it shape you as a leader?
2: it's been incredibly integral to me as a leader because basically it's all about relationships. You know, you may have a product, you may have a service that's new, but at some point you come up against the reality that you've got to convince people to use it, that you've got to convince people to give it a chance. So it's all about communicating and also understanding the barriers and the hesitancies that people have about ideas. So as a psychologist, you're obviously very tapped into how difficult it is, for example, to get change to happen. And so I would say that my psychology skills and what I learned as a psychologist have been incredibly important. I mean, I mentioned advertising before. I mean, what's advertising if it isn't psychology, if it isn't trying to figure out how people process information and what motivates them?
1: Well, let's expound about that just a tiny bit when we talk about you know, clinical psychology because people hear clinical psychology and it might be a little bit like, oh, clinical psych-, little, they're afraid of that word for some reason. Yeah. But when you look at it when you're hiring people, for example, like psychologists have a great way to understand what's going on, empathy and stuff like that. So when hiring for certain positions, what are you looking for?
2: I'm looking for people who want to build teams and who can work with others. I am trying to stay away from narcissism and from ego-driven individuals. So when I am interviewing or assessing someone for my team, I'm assessing for someone who's going to be mission-focused, who's not going to be focused on who gets the credit, who's going to be focused on a goal and be willing to work with other folks without worrying about, you know, who gets the credit for what. Very important quality.
1: And how do you tell that in an interview, right? I mean, I'm sure with your background, you can pick a narcissist out a mile away, but not just from a narcissism standpoint, what is one question that you may ask a particular candidate that really says, okay, this may or may not be the right person?
2: So one question would be, tell me about your biggest accomplishment in your field and tell me about your biggest failure. And the way people talk about those two things will tell you very quickly in which camp they lie.
1: What is the best answer that you've ever heard? If you remember, it's just like, I heard this, I was like, damn, that was great. That was exactly what I was looking for.
2: I can't give you one very specific answer, but one quality in the answer would be giving credit to other people they worked with. How many times a person says I, 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 I in an answer tells you a lot.
1: So the complete opposite of a narcissist, correct? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you want to have a a healthy ego. You want to be confident. But yes, that would be correct.
0: That's sage advice. I mean, many of our listeners are looking for guidance on how to become better leaders and how to identify and mentor others in their organization, whether that's in the public sector or the private sector. What do you think it takes from, because this is a question we get asked a lot. What what do you think it takes to properly mentor an individual or a group?
2: Well, it takes an enormous amount of generosity because if you're really going to mentor somebody, it is time consuming. But the way I always start my mentorship relationship is I say to people, do you want to be good or do you want to feel good? Because to be good there are times where I'm not going to make you feel good because I am going to tell you how you can do something better than you're doing it. So if you just want to feel good, then you're not going to enjoy my mentorship. If you want to be good, you are. And that's a big distinction because we're, we've become a culture that is expecting compliments and, and positive reinforcements all the time. Yep. And I don't think we grow that way. I think if you give positive reinforcement for everything, it becomes meaningless. Not everyone's a rock star. Not everyone's a superstar. If you give positive reinforcement when someone's really, truly done something great, that works. Not when you do it all the time. But we have kind of become a bit of a soft society that way where we're all expecting badges no matter what.
0: (laughs) I think that's Mark's number one comment typically around leadership. Uh, Mark, do you want to take the rest of that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny because I, I just asked this, you know a similar question uh, on the previous podcast, and it's really about, you know, a lot of times growing up, I mean, in particular myself, you know, my father was super hard on me, right? Super hard of like, you know, you've got to be tough, you got to do this, you right. got to do this, and you kind of create that outer shell of being tough, right? But I feel, again, as I like to call it, the participation trophy, you know, world we're living in where, again, everyone... Yeah it's a participation trophy for everything. So as a leader, how do you approach this new generation of upcoming leaders to ensure that, hey, you know, what's the best way to go about that? I should say, you know, when you're training these aspiring leaders?
2: Well, first of all, you know, when I am mentoring or training so that they're not surprised by the way I do it, I tell them in advance before that relationship starts, this is how I'm going to do it. Okay. So you're, no, I'm not the person who's going to tell you that you are fantastic every day. No, I'm not. Okay. I'm never going to be punishing. I'm never going to be disrespectful. But when you hear a compliment from me about something you've done, you know, it's because you've done a really good job. So the first thing is to prepare them in your mentorship style. So they're not taken aback. And what's really interesting, and I've seen this with grad students across the years, Of course, at the beginning, it's tough, you know, to get your first paper and it's like all in red, you know, and they cry and they're and they like, I've never gotten anything but an A in my life. And that's when I say, well, okay, but you tell me, do you want to feel good or do you want to be good? What's really interesting is if you mentor that way, again, with caring and with warmth and with kindness, which I do, people become addicted to that. They don't like the false compliments anymore. And there have been times when I have said, you know, that's a fantastic job. And they've said, no, come on, come on. There must be something wrong with it. Tell me, I want it to be even better. So you can get trainees to, like I said, almost become addicted to that critical feedback because they can see themselves. They're getting better every day because of it.
0: Now, is that emblematic now of what we consider a digital world, this feedback loop, data, other things like that?
2: Yeah, of course it is. I mean, everybody's on social media showing you what they're eating that night, and then they, they, they're <laughs> upset if they got a 1,000 likes <laughs> you know, instead of 2,000 likes. And, of course, these are ways in which people put forth these false versions of lives, right? Everybody on Facebook is having a way better time than you. Everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I absolutely think that social media has, in fact, contributed to that need for immediate validation of the silliest things. really, honestly. So, I'm not a fan of that way. I don't think that's how we get good.
0: Taking a look at that, we talk about social transformation on our show. And, obviously, you just spoke to some of the dynamics around leadership, mentoring, and so on is there something that you see in the social transformation that we have today other than this maybe over-exercise positive uh, reinforcement that you think is a critical trend I mean you see it from your professional scholarly point of view from your leadership point of view but also from your personal point of view what is a trend or trends that you think are really important for leaders to follow or to understand or people who are aspiring to leadership positions
2: well i think we've all become more aware of community, of our interconnectedness. Now, you know, there are the silly examples of that that we just talked about, but there's the important ones, too. And um, if this pandemic has done anything, I mean, it has shown this global interconnectedness. Now, unfortunately, in a negative way, but think about the implications of that global interconnectedness if we were to think about positive manifestations of it. So I think that heightened sense of community is probably something that I've seen in my lifetime really change and become much more pronounced in good ways and bad.
1: Now, looking at yourself, as we're going through, you know, COVID has changed a lot for a lot of people, right? It's made the personal connections kind of go away a little bit, the rise of Zoom off the charts, the rise of these, you know, FaceTimes and stuff like that. But from your standpoint, you know, how has COVID impacted you on a personal level, whether that being a mother, wife, business leader, give, give us some stories around that aspect of it.
2: You know, on a personal level, it's been very frustrating because I have a a mom who's uh, going to be uh, 95 in September, and I have not uh, been able to cross the border into Canada to see her yet. So that's on a personal level. I do think, though, I have a heightened sense of gratitude for all of the wonderful people in my life. I've always been blessed with uh, wonderful friends and wonderful connections. And something about COVID has kind of emphasized that for me and underlined it. So feeling very grateful for that.
1: What's next for Marta? What's next for you? What's coming Uh up?
2: You know what? I almost want to say one never knows because it's always been something totally unexpected. Right now, I am really focusing on paying it forward. And I'm doing that with my work, my discipline in sexuality. I've been doing a lot of writing and some really interesting research that I think will be helpful I'm uh, doing that by working with my community partners to try to advance uh, women in industry and women in leadership. So, you know, I'm at this stage in my career. I mean, I think I was always a, a generous person, but I'm not looking to be any particular position anymore. I want to find ways to advance people and causes I care about.
0: Well, that brings us to... A rapid-fire section of the podcast. And in this particular segment, uh, we're going to ask you a series of questions. And whatever the answer is, the first thing that comes to mind, please tell us. Let's start okay. with your favorite song.
2: I don't know what it's called, but it's by an Icelandic group called Sigur Roth. Can you, can
0: you sing that for us? Whatever the song is, <laughs> No, can you sing it? no, I
2: can't. All right.
0: But, but there must be something. Did you go to Iceland?
2: No, uh, Sigur Ross is a fantastic kind of alternative. I I, I like very alternative music, and oh, it's, wow. it's, it's You should pick it up. I'm I, telling I will, you. I and will. It, it was in a movie in The Life Aquatic with Bill Murray. There we so go. it's not. I'm not like crazy.
1: No, no, no,
0: no, no. I will go get them. But that is a wonderful, diverse, eclectic point of view for music. I must admit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm probably um, Oprah's now hooked on it as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she, she,
0: she reads Marta's yeah. playlist. You know? I'm gonna go get that one. That's for sure awesome Uh, favorite superhero
2: well of course Wonder Woman
0: yes Yes. Uh,
2: Wonder Woman's awesome I have
0: have a cousin who looks just like Wonder Woman but she says I'm not Wonder Woman 1984 I'm like Wonder Woman 1960 something
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to look like Gal Gadot she is gorgeous
0: (laughs) Um, your favorite movie
2: my favorite movie you're going to find it off the beaten track again is that? Beast.
0: Oh, the
1: best beast! Great. Uh,
2: Yeah, a Scandinavian film that I is one of my favorite movies. Fantastic.
1: Favorite book?
2: Well, you know, um, it's A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But I just read um, uh, one that won the Booker Prize last year called Should Be Bane, which is also astounding, astounding.
0: And if you think about going forward here in the next twelve months, what is the one thing or most important things that our listening audience should consider, either personally or professionally.
2: Don't go back to normal. Make it new. Make awesome. it better. Awesome. Um, <laughs> don't just go. Phew. That's over. Let's find a better path.
0: That is sage and wise advice. Thank you. Mark, take us out.
1: That has been the Net Effects podcast, where we talk about personal, social in digital transformation. We wanna thank Doctor Marta Miana for giving us her time. We truly appreciate it. It was great. You know, we really enjoyed your insights on leadership and a bunch of things also on new Icelandic music. Yes. Which is we
0: well, are <laughs> now good for part of a theme music for our show, clearly.
1: Yeah. We might add we might add it as a theme song. But yeah, we truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you back if you're willing. Thanks. Uh, we could have talked to you forever and we really appreciate all you're doing from a leadership standpoint and really mentoring women moving forward. So thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you. It's been fun.
0: Thank you, Morta.